The following podcast contains adult situations and language. This content is intended only for listeners 18 and over. The story you're about to hear is true. If you are just joining us, please start with episode one. You're going to want to know everything anyway. We'll see you shortly. Meanwhile, previously on The Incident. Once there was a boy and something terrible happened to him. It's last call at the bar. I notice a young man eyeing me, longish, sandy blonde hair. He is the one in the group of about 12 men left that I want. So with all haste, we slide out the door into the frigid night. And then there's a knife at my throat. And here I am facing down an even larger threat than I ever let my imagination consider. Get a faggot. Hold it, Junior. We got your car keys, and we want your car. And car doors open and close. Taillights grow small and dim. It's over. And I never see him again. Until April 30th, 1989. Hi. My name is Terry, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Terry. And tonight, my dears, I'm cashing in all of my sobriety chips. Walking into the den of my former iniquities punches me right in the nose. The acrid perfume of liquor, stale cigarette smoke, and the men of my past are like a rush of poppers. On the jukebox, Stevie Nicks and her piano begin to soar into the midnight flight of Rhiannon, just as if they knew I was on my way. Behind the bar, three shelves of bottles dance with the colors of precious gems designed with marketing perfection. Ruby red, dark sapphire, pale amber, and emerald green. It's as dazzling as a display case at Tiffany's, and it makes me want to buy some furniture and give the cat a name. I'm back. Even driving to the bar, my senses begin to give themselves wholly to the coming taste. The bitter juniper of a gin and tonic with a shock of lime. I react physically at the mere idea. My whole body feels slightly liquid and consumed with the prospect of that first taste in 10 years of gin on the tip of my tongue. Followed by the prize. Slightly delayed vapors of alcohol break through to deliver a trip to oblivion. I order my rebellion, a double tanqueray and tonic, two limes, in a rocks glass. I watch the bartender, a maestro of mixology, pour a perfect three ounces of liquor in the glass. Splash of tonic, two limes, squirting juice like sex. It had gotten so routine to me, I just wanted a drink to slam back and get fucked up. Looking at it anew, it's transfixing, a feat of magic. If the truth were to be told, I love liquor. I even like the spelling of the word, 
it looks like what it is. He sets the drink down and I give him a 20 and tell him to keep the change. It's the least I can do for the unwitting man who aids and abets the murder of my sobriety. I look at the drink. I can smell the lime. The bubbles of tonic move and pop, a kinetic dance inside the glass. Here's the deal. When I stopped drinking, I didn't get sober. I went sober. Wild turkey to cold turkey. But before that, I decided to go out in one final blaze of intoxicated glory. Call me old-fashioned. I would love to tell you the story, but I don't remember it. At some point the next day, I woke up as bleary as you can possibly be and not be pronounced dead at the scene. Slowly, I rolled to my left and find myself nose to penis with a complete stranger. He's a beautiful brunette with curly shoulder-length hair and a thin, wispy mustache. He's so pretty, and I don't even know who the hell he is. And I have no idea what we did last night. We make out for a while, soft, languid kisses, and can't stop grinning. It's a gentle, easy way to sneak into mourning. He softly asks, if it's all right if he takes a shower. Be still, my heart. He's gorgeous, well-hung, and a gentleman. As he goes into the bathroom, I move to sit up in bed and I feel something down there. I'm really sore. So not only did I wake up with a beautiful stranger with an awesome cock, and by awesome, I mean the awe of the gods, it is apparent, because I am sore down there, that this beautiful stranger with the awesome cock fucked me hard. And I don't remember one moment of it. God damn it. That's just great. Well, I hope he enjoyed me. I take him home to his apartment, which is close, and when he reaches his door, he turns and blows a kiss, grinning broadly. Then he shuts his door, gone forever. I'm immediately overcome with sadness. He's so sweet, and the morning has been so affectionate. But blacking out just casts a pall over it. Ah, well, it was delicious while it lasted. How many missed opportunities does this make, I wonder? I drive back home and start the difficult journey of living a life without blackouts, without my delicious anesthetic. And I had done so well. That is to say, before I was taken by obsession with that boy from my past, the boy that held a knife to my throat, that boy who became a man who did the unspeakable. The possibility that I'd had an encounter with a serial killer wasn't comprehensible to me. It didn't make sense. And I sure as hell didn't want it to be true. 
I became obsessed with every detail, going down every possible avenue to disprove it. The very thought that I was in far more peril that night than I knew was terrifying. I've always been good at compartmentalizing, even with this, but it got to where it kept leaving its compartment, and I couldn't stop it. This one was just too goddamn big, and I just kept running into one wall after another. And when some information didn't confirm what I was looking for, I just moved on, following the next thread to a new possibility. But try as hard as I could, staying up till dawn researching, isolating myself for weeks as I tracked down newspaper articles and web archives, reliving the night over and over, it all led to the inevitable, and tonight, he broke me. I can't run anymore. So, here I am, after 10 years sober, belly up to the bar again, here to hide my pain with my long-lost friend. I notice it's very slow and ask the bartender why. He tells me there's a big drag show HIV benefit happening over on the Strip. In the quiet, I hear a woman's voice rising and falling, mostly sobbing, sometimes laughing, the speech slurred. Jesus, please don't let some total drunk ruin this moment. I ask him what's up with the drunk. He says she comes in every once in a while and she's always in pretty bad shape, but she doesn't bother anyone, she's just got problems. On the jukebox, as Rhiannon fades to the short break in between tracks, that quiet breath of reality before a new song carries us back to the party, the woman's voice gets suddenly clear. It's Andrea. Andrea. And all the bullshit, nobody remembers Andrea. I recognize the voice immediately. She was very famous once. Her name is Priscilla, and she clearly appears to be an alcoholic. Hi, Priscilla. She's sitting at the bar with two older gay men, comforting and careful with her. My friends who don't believe in destiny don't understand just how fucking destiny this is. That she's here, now. How absolutely unfucking avoidable here on this night, the night it all came together and my house of cards fell. The Incident, Chapter 4, Andrea Wilborn. Priscilla Davis first comes to my attention in her heyday in the 70s. With great controversy, she ruled Fort Worth society. I adore her naive defiance of social constraints and sexual mores. A nouveau riche rebel who sticks it to the powers that be. Many dismissed her as a money-hungry dumb blonde, but I admired her. I wasn't rich but I identified with her willfulness, with her refusal to be inauthentic. She was doing what so many of my gay friends and I were doing, 
challenging conventions, demanding the right to have the ultimate say in our own fucking lives. She is a very real hero in my life. But there is a price to be paid, and she never saw any of it coming. August 2nd, 1976. It's almost midnight and not atypically for August, it was still in the 90s. Dinner ran long and afterwards Priscilla and Stan, her new young beefcake boyfriend, and their two friends stopped by the Rangoon Racket Club, which was for years known as the Cullen and Priscilla Hangout. Cullen Davis is Priscilla's soon-to-be ex-husband, but for now the club is the hangout for Priscilla and Stan. If Cullen found out, it would make him livid, and she knew he'd find out because he always found out. The old crocodiles of Fort Worth society hated her. They made sure he found out. After a long week in divorce court, dinner and then nightcaps at the club are just what the doctor ordered, especially since today has been a total triumph. August 2nd, 1976, the day the judge awards her a highly generous increase in spousal support to $5,000 a month, agrees to an increase in funds for expenses to $50,000, and also forbids Cullen to come near the mansion. The mansion. That's the real victory. He loves his house, designed and supervised it from conception to completion, and she, Priscilla, has custody of the house until at least the end of the divorce proceeding. Actually, things have gone well with this judge. For the most part, he's ruled in her favor, and just winning over Cullen makes it worthwhile. Nothing gets under his skin like losing. That's his real passion, winning. And this divorce could go on for months or years. Hell, it's already been 27 months. Besides, it's still possible that she could get the house permanently. Oh, that would kill him. Fighting the Davis family? A true ordeal. It'll take big balls, but she's got him. Priscilla's breasts may not be real, but her balls are. On the ride home, she rests her face against the passenger window, the side air conditioning vent whispering over her face, soothing the lines of tension there. She watches the shimmer and sway of city lights melt across the window, Lights that, when she arrived in 1968, were nowhere to be seen in the Fort Worth skyline. There was barely even a skyline. But the city was on the brink of a huge oil boom. Money and status became the checkers on the board. Except, this wasn't a game. And Priscilla, with three kids from multiple marriages in tow, hits the town. Her current husband, Jack, is an adept, ambitious used car dealer who is on his way up. And that's the deal. Jack starts making money with a capital M. It's the entree for rubbing elbows with the social set. Because he has money. Money gets you a chance. Rubbing elbows gets you access. 
access to the right people, the right places. You may not pass, but you get a chance. The tenuous alliance of old money and up-and-coming money. Old money forgets it was young money once. Priscilla and Jack join the posh country club and one day choose to go looking for a couple to play doubles with. I'm referring to actual tennis here, shame on you. Priscilla and her husband run into someone else looking for doubles partners, Cullen Davis and his wife Sandra. And these two couples play a foursome all afternoon. Two weeks later, Priscilla and Cullen are secretly dating. Each in a failing marriage anyway, they are drawn intensely to each other, the way only rich people can be drawn. A few weeks after that, Cullen and Priscilla, who have been meeting each other at the Green Oaks Motel, are stunned when the door is broken down and investigators hired by Priscilla's estranged husband rush in, taking pictures and threatening them. The pictures never see the light of day. Cullen has power, and he's already using it. But the damage is done. The story is out. Cullen Davis is big news, and now so is Priscilla. It is at this moment that the mythic Priscilla Davis, the homewrecker, the nympho, the drug-addicted honky-tonk woman is born. She is a polarizing force amongst the elite class, either loathed or loved with no in-between. To much of old money Fort Worth society, she's an interloper a crass and clumsy gold digger, completely out of her league. Cullen is one of them, and she isn't. Cullen Davis exposed in a motel is Priscilla. That would never happen without her. Those who really know her think she's a refreshing antidote to the hypocritical, gossipy crones who live for stirring up trouble. At first look, they seem a sort of oddball couple, Cullen is mostly serious, committed to the business, driven to win. He meets Priscilla and meets his match in her flirtatious charisma. He's not much for the spotlight, but you can see many pictures of him in the background, basking in the pop and glow of flashbulbs drinking in her naughty girl glamour. After all the work and social engineering, by 1971, they're the hottest couple in Cowtown. It seems everything they do is memorialized by newspapers, television stations, radio talk shows, and everywhere that people gather to gossip. At first, the couple seems to make it work, Priscilla collecting clothes and Cullen collecting art. They held court at the Rangoon Racket Club, the place to be for the trendy crowd, AKA New Money. Even visiting celebrities gravitated to the Rangoon as it was the place to see and be seen. And yet always in the spotlight, Priscilla and Cullen. Priscilla revels in the talk and attention. She knows it irritates the shit out of the old dinosaurs of Fort Worth society. And she really sets their teeth on edge when she buys a necklace with diamonds, spelling out rich bitch. They think she's shameless, advertising herself in such a vulgar manner. But really, they don't get it. 
They're playing the wrong game. Priscilla's not talking about herself. If these dinosaurs take a close look at her diamond necklace, the reflections staring back are the real rich bitches. Meanwhile, Cullen delivers on a promise to design and build Priscilla a $3 million dream house. Except it doesn't reflect her at all. No curves, no whimsy, no sense of fun. Sleek, contemporary, all hard angles. And what is extremely rare for this area, it's equipped with a basement. Just another oddity in the house that Cullen built a perfect sanctuary for the alpha male. What was to be Priscilla's $3 million dream house fits Cullen like a glove. It's a proud achievement for him, maybe the proudest. It becomes his magnificent obsession, known simply as the mansion. It sits at the top of a hill that rises out of a huge undeveloped field some people find it to be interesting and imaginative. Some hate it. I believe that it is absolutely the ugliest building I have ever seen. But beyond the high gloss of the mansion, travel, parties, charity balls, there is an underbelly of aggression on the carcasses of social elites that she misses or misjudges. They despise her and many will unite against her in an effort to lift up Cullen Davis and discredit her, destroy her, put an end to their marriage. The public at large is fixated over this couple whose high-powered antics and public drama will mesmerize and divide the city with the heavy hand of the social axe. If she cared what they thought, she might have foreseen the coming storm. But she's the party girl who doesn't realize that sometimes, after midnight, the party ends. She married into a highly driven, hugely successful oil dynasty, a tough, competitive group of brothers vying for power, filing lawsuits against each other, feeding their own rumor mills. That does nothing to help the increasing volatility of their relationship, which looks to be hurtling toward divorce. They're bleeding out for the entertainment of the masses, and the divorce is the main event. What started out as a star-crossed Bobby and Pamela has now gone full-on J.R. and Sue Ellen. As is so often true of these rich Texas couplings, eventually the gold-plated bloom comes off the rose and the couple grows fractious, combative, vengeful, jealous. After one particularly bitter fight, Priscilla has finally had it. Enough is enough. She threatens divorce and goes out and hires an attorney. And with that, war is declared. The divorce proceedings will ultimately last around three years. Multiple issues to be ironed out, but also temporary decisions until everything finalizes. Hundreds of little battles and scores of big battles. This includes awarding Priscilla custody of the mansion, at least until the end of the divorce trial, if not permanently. Bitterness, recriminations, and unrelenting gossip swirl around the breakup. 
They were on the front page of every paper and the lead story of every news broadcast. It was Priscilla and Cullen all day, all the time. This is the biggest fucking thing since the Kennedy assassination. The mythology only grows as the proceedings move on and on into the 27th month, always ending up at Priscilla's private proclivities. The tales of wild orgies, pool parties with drugs laid out all over the house, and some repeated stories that the basement is a dungeon full of whips and bondage equipment and God knows what else that slut brought into the house. Her friends challenged the constant demeaning, belittling attacks. Allies to the end, they like her, speak of generosity even to a fault, and the unapologetic candor that makes her an even bigger target. Big blow to the dumb blonde stereotype, and she has an uninhibited Texas wit. She may imbibe too much, but she's funny as hell. And if she loves you, she loves you. In all the bullshit, no one remembers Andrea. As the car pulled up the driveway and parked in front of the mansion, Priscilla found her way back to the present. Ah, the mansion. Cullen's mansion. She lives here, but it's still his. She actually hates it, but because it's his, she'll be goddamned if she gives it up without a big, fat fight. It's better since Stan moved in, not so lonely. She follows Stan as they enter through the breakfast room. He heads on up to the master bedroom and Priscilla moves into the kitchen to turn off the lights and go to bed. She notices a light coming from the basement and the door ajar. There's a smudge on the wall. She catches sight of the security system and it's completely off. That's strange. Behind her, a voice. Hi. She turns to see a figure dressed all in black, wearing a woman's wig, the hands held together and wrapped in a black plastic bag. He smiles and shoots Priscilla through the chest, the bullet exiting her back. She screams in agony. Priscilla has always said in every interview, in all her trial testimony, that the shooter was Colin Davis. She is vehemently unwavering in her accusation that Colin did it. That's it. Case closed. Period. At this point, Stan, hearing the commotion in the kitchen, runs down and is shot four times. Priscilla testified she was looking Stan in the eyes and she watched him die on the floor of the breakfast room. It's something you never forget, seeing the light go out. The man in black violently grabs Stan by the lower legs and starts dragging him into the kitchen. She runs into the courtyard and hears footsteps racing right behind her. On instinct only, she looks for anything that might be a weapon. She needs something to defeat this animal fury. But he catches her and starts dragging her firmly by the wrists. She pleads with him to stop, but he just repeatedly, calmly, gently keeps saying, come on, come on, come on. She knows she's out of options. This is it. Then, there's a sweep of headlights across the windows from the parking area. 
A car pulls up the driveway and two friends of the family step out for a late night visit. The disguised assailant drops Priscilla and rockets towards the couple heading for the house. Priscilla finds a growth of huge hedges and throws herself deep into the bushes. She hears more shots and screaming and realizes her older daughter Dee had not been home when they arrived. Oh my God, this can't be Dee arriving. Please, God, no. She knows she has got to get out of there. She takes off down the hill. She can feel the hole in her chest and pulls up her denim skirt to stanch the blood, all while running a hundred yards down a steep incline and another hundred yards across a field to a group of residences. She reaches a house and pounds on the door hysterically, waking the family. They reportedly hear her scream that she's Priscilla Davis, she's been shot, and Colin is up at the mansion. He's killing everyone. The residents don't let her in but call an ambulance, and Priscilla and her wounds and her stories and her doctors and the police and the detectives all end up at the hospital. The moment the news of the multiple shootings at the Davis mansion broke, Colin, being the estranged husband, naturally becomes the prime suspect. The media saturation of their volatile marriage and acrimonious divorce make at least a possible motive self-evident. And in her interview with the cops, Priscilla details that day's divorce proceedings, which had all gone against Cullen, outlining a further motive for his attack detailing the bizarre disguise and asserting adamantly that he pulled the trigger. Before dawn, based largely on the eyewitness accounts of Priscilla and one of the visitors to the house that night, Cullen Davis is arrested. As the day unfolds, Priscilla finds out details of what all happened. The two visitors the night before are friends of Dee, Priscilla's oldest daughter, Dee had mentioned they could crash there that night. According to both Bev Bass and Bubba Gavrell, when they first pulled up the driveway, they heard a woman crying and a man saying, come on, come on. They get out and head towards the voices when they're met by a man in black. He starts shooting. Bubba is hit and instantly paralyzed and Bev takes off running down the hill in the opposite direction from Priscilla. She is terrified and traumatized and confused, but out of the pandemonium, she insists on one thing. Cullen Davis did it. She looked him right in the eyes. The light coming from the basement and the bloody handprint that had first set Priscilla on edge end up being worse than she could have ever feared. That night, while all the commotion, screaming, and shooting are going on in the kitchen, in the basement whose door is ajar, whose light is on, whose contents do not include whips and chains, inside that basement is the cold, dead body of Priscilla's daughter, 12-year-old Andrea. Do me a favor. Remember a 12-year-old girl who came home early and met an intruder who she might have known, who she might have even let in the door, but still an intruder who took her down into a basement and face to face shot her in the chest and left her to die. 
alone and cold. I survived my attack, yet her time was up at 12 years old. Please remember, Andrea Wilborn. The big mystery still remains why. Why Andrea? Impossible to understand. Priscilla can understand why he shot her. After all, she's the gold-digging slut who wants to take him for everything. She understands why he shot Stan. He's the new boy toy. She even understands Bev and Bubba driving up at the wrong time and how he has witnesses to get rid of. But Andrea is the first. She'd been out of town and came back early. No one else at home. Cullen. Yes, Cullen probably doesn't know she's back. How does he treat her when he runs into her unexpectedly in the house? Is she scared? Does he pull the gun on her and force her down the stairs, not caring that a 12-year-old knows she's going to die? Does he trick her, maybe, leading her to the basement to show her something really fun and then just does it, makes it fast? Oh, Jesus, I hope he tricked her so she wasn't scared. But she was shot in the chest, so she must have been facing him. Her very last moment on earth, and she's looking into the eyes of her murderer. That's so cruel. Why, Andrea? If she only hadn't come home early. The trial is pretty much going to be about Priscilla's lifestyle. She already knows it. She worries that she won't be a good witness because she's on painkillers. But she has no choice. Without the Percodan, she is in crippling pain from the wounds she sustained that night, which still have not fully healed. She isn't quite prepared for the fury with which they will attack her as a drinking, Percodan-addicted whore who has constant orgies. Colin has hired Richard Racehorse Haynes, at the time the most legendary, flamboyant, and brilliant lawyer in Texas. His trial strategy is clever, overwhelming, and cruel in its way, as he is a specialist in turning the victim into the defendant and the defendant into the victim. According to Cullen's lawyers, Priscilla hangs around with all sorts of questionable musicians and drug addicts. She's addicted to Percodan, so her recollections and memories are highly suspect. And sex, 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 money, 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 and of course, fake tits. Just another sign that she's depraved, someone unfit, and she's on the stand for days. The local television and newspapers crank into even higher gear, reporting with impunity every salacious detail of living life as a flamboyant, defiant slut. By the time he is through with her, she is decimated. Priscilla doesn't give a damn what they do to her on the stand. She's alive. But Andrea is not. Why? Andrea was barely starting. It's all wrong. Nothing's right. The seeds of obsessive torment are already bearing fruit as the insanity of gross injustice finds a permanent place to grow and thrive. Priscilla wishes it had been her. She's the one he hated. He didn't even hate Stan. He just killed Stan to hurt her. 
God. If he killed Andrea to hurt her, well, good job, Cullen. It worked. You won. Is there anything she could have done to stop this? To save her daughter? If the truth were to be known, she supposes they both did some bad things to each other. Some things that could have been avoided. But some things could not be avoided. One can only imagine what she feels in the dead of night after copious adult beverages. She should have just caved to Cullen's demands, but she was unable. It's her fault. This journey of guilt Priscilla will take over and over through the increasingly cold years. For a while, she's able to live a functionally insane existence. She even stays in the mansion after the killings until the divorce is finalized. She will not give Cullen that satisfaction. Perhaps it's petty and pointless. There have been times when they both behaved badly. But one thing is certain, Priscilla did not kill a child. After a trial in which every embarrassing detail about Priscilla Davis's life was on full display, Cullen Davis was found not guilty of all charges. It was Racehorse Haynes' signature defense, bypassed the victim in the case, impeached the state's chief witness, addicted to painkillers, her recollections unreliable, suspect, and the alleged wild parties she gave were filled with drug dealers and musicians and criminals, any one of whom might be the killer. He simply persuaded that the state failed in its burden to prove the charges beyond a reasonable doubt. The divorce proceedings concluded on April 20th, 1979. Cullen was awarded the mansion. Priscilla Davis was awarded $3.3 million and a 30-day order to vacate. During the time she remains in the mansion, She'll have select guests up to her bedroom suite, which has become the sum and substance of her living area. She does, however, find a new group of friends. Gay men adore her, take her in with love and support, a sense of understanding. They identify with brutal derision. They identify with society's perverse joy in her suffering and the slut-got-what-she-deserved attitude. They've lived it all their lives. Eventually, she moves to a one-bedroom apartment in the gay neighborhood of Dallas, Oak Lawn. Her fortune is mostly gone, largely through unrestrained generosity to her friends and medical bills. On the occasions when a group goes out to dinner, Priscilla foots the bill for everyone as if she still had millions. If a friend is in a jam, she's still the bank but she's still able to be wildly funny. Despite everything, she can reel off a dirty joke and throw her head back laughing like the myth. And at the bar that night, as I sit watching and listening to her, the damage is no longer concealable. She may still be functional during the day, but by night, she's ravaged. We drink to forget. But all we can do is remember. We feel the grief repeatedly, purposely, because if we stop, they finally, fully die. 
rituals become fetishes meant to intensify the connection. The drinks that kick the journey off from full-blooded love to cold-blooded murder. Night after bloody night, looking for a clue, for an explanation, for an answer to a question that has no answer. Why, Andrea? This is her lifelong obsession, the mystery that refuses to die even as her daughter has. Andrea Wilborn came into the world on January 22, 1964. She died on August 2, 1976. There are some pictures that capture a moment frozen in time, others a moment fluid. There is a picture of Andrea that is late in her 12-year-old life. It's soft and delicate, but so alive, animated by her inner life. When I look at it, I see reflections of clouds passing in her eyes. Life seems to be in motion, moving forward just as it should. Her face is almost beatific in its easy belief in hope for the future, oblivious to the creeping chaos. How many times have she and her mother indulged those mother-daughter cliches, rites of passage, imagining them, picturing them, planning them, moving through to the future? The prom with a beautiful Neiman Marcus gown picked out by mama and daughter, which if mama has her way, will be pink. They giggle about it. But soon, Andrea finds the family in the center of a storm that becomes national in scope. Priscilla later testifies and confides to friends about increasingly violent incidents with Cullen in the mansion. Her daughter, Dee, confirms the abuse. They both speak of Cullen in a rage, grabbing Dee's kitten out of her arms and slamming it against the kitchen floor until dead. Both women testify to and speak of violence towards them many times, but it impacts nothing. Andrea stands surrounded by anger, scandal, and vengeance of the most public kind. The hottest couple in Fort Worth is divorcing, and every salacious, gossipy, intimate detail of their private lives is splashed across every form of media. And yet, quiet Andrea sits there watching everybody drag her mother through the mud and then has to go to school. Jesus, school. Is school as bad as we all know it can be with this kind of ammunition? Do boys pass by and whisper obscenities about her mother's sex life? Do girls giggle and gossip as she walks by? What she doesn't know is that none of it matters because contrary to perfectly reasonable expectations, her time is almost up. By now, the jukebox stops. The bartender is flirting with a customer and has forgotten to reload it. Priscilla is barely able to hold her head up. Her speech is very slurred, with an occasional Andrea or Cullen reference rising to the surface. Finally, she tosses her hair back like it's 20 years ago. The girl who falls into stardom and murder orders another vodka. 
I pushed my untouched Tanqueray and tonic away from me. At the door, I turned back to look. I don't want to leave. I feel kinship here. But this bar is full of unfinished business. So much shame, secrets, consequence. I'm consumed with the feeling that I'm deserting her, leaving her to bear her grief alone. I feel cruel to walk away. What can I do? How can I help? Had I known that within the year Priscilla would die from complications of breast cancer, I might have considered staying. But I don't want this ending. My path is unclear, but this is not my destiny. And I leave. I just drive. What the fuck is this? How did I walk into that? A collision of lives and times and choices, leaving the air full of guilt and echoing violence. I get that. A heavy price is paid. I get that, too. She was smeared publicly, while I made sure I smeared myself privately with shame, self-loathing, and blame. It's way too easy to get stuck and stay there. The paralysis at the heart of obsession. The ultimate legacy of violence is the persistent question, why? I still ask, but I don't ask without hope. Even when I know there may not be an answer, my hope apparently dies as hard as my obsession. God, I can't stand it. Fuck this. I can't go home. I'm too jacked up. A cold front is blowing in and the wind is biting. Oh, this is fucked. I need to go. A cold front is blowing in and the wind is biting. I need to go. What the motherfucking fuck? I'm going back there where it happened. I'm going to return to the scene of the crime. That's what I'm going to do. Maybe there's something there. Directly after the incident, I went repeatedly, always at night, trying to get a handle on how it happened and reassure myself that after all, I did survive it. And now, here I am 30 years later going back. I take the exact route I did that night. Fits you to Turtle Creek, to Cedar Springs, to Harry Hines, past Parkland Hospital, past Brook Hollow Golf Club, past the biker bars, across Northwest Highway, past Lombardy, past Manana, take a U-turn at Walnut Hill, go one block, take a right, and find myself in the parking lot of what used to be Red Letter News number two. It long ago ceased to be an adult bookstore, and now is just a cheap furniture shop. But ghosts ride a wild wind tonight, released from the past, rebellious, exultant in freedom. It feels lawless again. I see where both cars were parked. I see the far edge of the parking lot where knives appeared. I look down Harry Hines. So much has changed. Still full of bars and pool halls, but with fancy sky-high neon, new graphics, and million-dollar condos where massage parlors and adult bookstores once were. 
The detritus of the underground, the people I knew and understood, seemed to have been swept away somewhere out of sight. And I miss them. I miss the hard scrabble community, their crazy cat energy, their damaged but tenacious souls, that safe society that Priscilla found solace in. But in this culture, that community is shameful and must be invisible. I drive into the traffic on Harry Hines, take a right on Lombardy, drive down a few blocks and then another right and go a few more blocks and stop. I'm here. It's so different now. The field is gone. Everything is developed. There are still a lot of small warehouses and family businesses, but they're newer, more modern in design, plowing under whispers of the past. I can still find the place where history happened, though, because one thing hasn't changed. The lighted highway offering a long shot at salvation. There's only one place where angle and distance are right, and I'm parked here. I feel a pull across time. Things happened right here, whatever buildings and progress suggest. Secret things buried beneath foundations. There may be a button torn from a shirt with a tale to tell. There may be crumblings of dirt, speckled maroon from a gash to a forehead. Shame subterranean and firmly rooted. I look again at the highway and wonder if others might have seen its cruel promise of freedom. Before their time ran out, how many other things are hidden here? Is this my own personal scene of the crime or do I share it with others? What parts of me that I don't even remember are buried here? And is it even possible for me to get them back? Because if it's not possible, then what am I doing? The weight of the day is starting to be crushing. I need to hit the road. I need something familiar. I don't know where I want to go, but I hop back in the car and in two minutes I'm on the freeway, hoping to find somewhere to land. I roll down the window and let the air rush across me. It's cold that late night purple sky. I miss the smell this time of year of Mrs. Baird's bakery across the street from SMU. It meant the end of the heat. SMU football with my father and brothers, diffuse sunsets that signal autumn, fall planting with my mother. I find myself at Ownby Stadium on the SMU campus right across from the bakery. Some friends run concessions here and I know a side way to get in. I go to the middle of the football field and just sit. All caught up in a time before everything, before every twist and turn before the unexpected cataclysm around a completely ordinary corner, before all of that, before I'm standing in a field wondering how bad a mess I'm really in, before that, 
a time when I was in love, a time when I was in love for the first time, and believe me, invincible. Five years before I was taught a lesson, I was in love for a time. Jerry, how can the great love of my life only have lasted two months and this horror show have lasted for decades? How can these ghosts stake a claim not only on my history, but on my future? Maybe you're just a bad person, Terry. Maybe you deserve it. It's possible. In a world where you can meet a serial killer, anything is possible. Will I ever shake this? Or does it just live with me like a virus? Well, I've already got a virus. This is something else. Obsession is now a thirst. After going back to the scene of the crime, I realize that I haven't gone back far enough. I'm just not done. I have to go back to the beginning. His beginning. The Incident is produced by CCP Media. Sound design and engineering by John M. Flores. Audio recording by Cameron Cobb. Original music by John M. Flores and Jim Kinzer. The podcast is based on true events, as chronicled in the one-man show The Incident by Terry Vandevoort. All rights reserved. Special thanks to Rob McCollum, Michael Federico, Brian Johnson, Jeffrey Schmidt, The Drama Club, Jackson Scoggins, and Kitchen Dog Theater. Sorry. <laughs> okay, okay, Terry. Relax. You're not really at the doctor's. <laughs>